Welcome to another episode of The Zach Eiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Austin Chang. So Dr. Austin Chang is a triple board certified doctor in gastroenterology, internal medicine, and obesity medicine. He got his BS from Duke, his MPH from Harvard, and his MD from Columbia. His internal medicine training was at New York Presbyterian Hospital. His GI training was from Harvard at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And bariatric endoscopy fellowship was from there as well. He is currently the chief medical officer of the gastrointestinal business for Medtronic. He's also an assistant professor of medicine, and he was the chief social media officer for the health system as well. He's also the director of the endoscopic bariatric program, and he's been named the Helio 2018 Gastroenterology Innovator of the Year and been featured on the New York Times, CNBC, BBC News, Men's Health, and many more. Finally, he sits on the inaugural YouTube Health Advisory Board and joined the White House Healthcare Leaders and Social Media Roundtable in 2022. Welcome, Dr. Chang. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So the way this starts usually is I go over a couple statistics. Specifically, we're going to start with gastroenterology. And then you just let me know if any of these statistics stand out to you, any of them you want to comment on. Okay. Okay, let's get into it. So the median attending physician salary across the U.S. is 339000 while the GI salary is 397000 Average hours worked across the U.S. for the average physician is 51 hours a week, while GI is 55 hours a week. 59% of all U.S. attendings are happy compared to 60% of all GI attendings. 47% of attendings have experienced burnout at some time in their career, while 48% of GI attendings have experienced burnout at some time in their career. Step 2 score average is 246 across America, and step 2 score in GI attendings is 246. Any thoughts on any of these statistics? Any of them pop out to you in any way, shape, or form? Well, it's uh, kind of nice to hear that we're kind of on par in terms of uh, burnout and happiness scores. Yeah. But um, but in terms of salary, I think it really varies widely. You know, those are yeah. averages or medians or whatever. But, um, you know, it really depends on what type of practice setting you practice in, whether it's academic or private practice, where in the U.S. you're practicing as well, I think makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so the range could be lower than that and also way higher than that, sometimes well into the seven figures. Wow. Um, so it, it really, there's a wide range. I mean, there's a couple outliers out yeah. there, I'll say. Yeah. Actually, random curiosity, what are the what are the different specialties of GI where the, the salary is higher as opposed to lower? I'm guessing is academic medicine usually a little lower? Yes. And then if you maybe go a little more rural, maybe private practice, you're doing kind of endoscopies and colonoscopies all day. Is it more at the higher end? Yeah, I think it, it's, um, it's hard to say because advanced endoscopy, for instance, uh, especially like within an academic center, yeah. could potentially make a little bit more depending yeah. on where you are. Um, but, you know, if you're out in the community in private practice, sometimes yeah. uh, the people who are really generating a lot of revenue are the people who are able to crank out a lot of procedures, you know, especially currently in our, uh, as it stands right now, we're still kind of in a fee-for-service yeah. model. And so yeah. people who are able to crank out a lot of screening colonoscopies, which is a general GI procedure, yeah end up making, you know, a lot more. That's interesting. And we're going to get into your extremely interesting background because I definitely want to talk on the social media, the White House, this new job that you have. I think <laughs> these are all really interesting things. But let's start with the GI. Let's start with gastroenterology and kind of helping medical students or people interested in gastroenterology learn, what is this? Why should I do this? Why shouldn't I do this? So what is gastroenterology? Well, gastroenterology, which we kind of shorten as GI, yeah. which is 
GI stands for more like gastrointestinal. Um, But it's basically, I would summarize as digestive diseases, diseases of the gut. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that aside from the gut, which we kind of, or I imagine to be sort of esophagus, stomach, intestines, colon, um, aside from that long tube of an organ, there's also other organs that we have to, you know, treat and deal with. And um, those include the liver, the biliary system, like the gallbladder, the bile duct, the pancreas, and also kind of less organ-based issues as well, like obesity medicine, um, uh, the microbiome. These are all hot topics, uh, you know, within gastroenterology. And why did you pick? How did you get interested in gastroenterology? Yeah, so I um, gravitated more towards the field because of the procedural aspect of things. Yeah. And um, and so which is why I ended up doing advanced endoscopy, mm-hmm. which is a subspecialty within GI, uh, which is more focused on sort of complex procedures that require additional training. And uh, often it's centered around the pancreas and the bile duct. But mm-hmm. um, nowadays there's a lot of other procedures that fall in, into advanced endoscopy like third space endoscopy where we go uh, between the layers of the wall of the gut to, to do certain procedures. Um, also endoscopic suturing procedures, which can also um, apply to obesity-related uh, treatments. So um, weight loss procedures where we actually can sew down the stomach and reduce the volume of the stomach. So there's a lot that we can do nowadays um, within endoscopy. And so that's really why I got into it. That's really interesting. So for the suturing, do you have like nine different cables that are going through this because it's a main tube, right? It's, yeah. I know very little about this. So it's a main tube and then in the tube you kind of put through all your instruments and things like this, right? right? Yeah, so the one sort of um, commercially available suturing device right now is an attachment onto the scope. Got it. And it's a certain kind of scope that has or the one that we most most uh, often use has two channels in it, which allow us to pass more instruments down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's and there's multiple different kinds of scopes that we use, like ultrasound scopes and whatnot. So there's you know there's wow. it's not just one um, specific scope that we use. There's a lot of different options. I almost picture it like a video game. Like if you're really good yeah. at video games, you're gonna. I mean, of course. You know, if you fail, it's not the <laughs> character that dies, but the humans, so and it's probably bad. But it's well. uh, but it's. It's like, because you're looking at a screen, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a controller, in a mm-hmm. sense, and you're kind of maneuvering things inside the screen, right? Because you can't, I guess you can't look inside exactly. down the throat, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good comparison. And there are actually some studies that show that if you're good at video games, really? you tend to do better at procedures. More like I think the studies are more in the surgical field, but it's, um, it's similar, you know? It's a lot of hand-eye coordination and depth perception, so that's you're absolutely right. That's really good. And I'm guessing there was a... A little like if you take a new fellow or a new resident on, there's got to be a learning curve, right? With learning the new controls and it, like even with the basic, if you're doing a basic colonoscopy or a basic just looking at an endoscopy yeah. to see if anything normal is or not normal is there, just the maneuvering of that thing is is a whole whole new oh, field, definitely. right? Definitely. I think when I I had the misconception uh, or misperception that when um, that gastroenterology was just simply throwing a scope down yeah. a tube, but really there's it's much more you know nuanced and. Um, there's a lot of body movement, you know, especially in advanced endoscopy. There's a lot of fine motor yeah. uh, control, and then also, you know, I'm I'm noticing that well over the years I've learned that I had to I'm moving my waist, I'm moving my elbow, yeah. I'm moving you know my body in all sorts of different directions to maneuver the scope yeah. the way I want. Are you putting the scope? This is I'm, we're going down a real rabbit hole here. <laughs> but one um uh um uh GI what's the, what's this colorectal surgeon? Mm-hmm. One colorectal surgeon I know has this like hook, and he puts the hook 
around his neck, and then and then so it's like the weight's on his neck, and then he has the control here. And he's, do you put the tube in any weird? Do you like wrap it around your waist? Is it on the floor? Is there any kind of weird positioning of the tube? Yeah, that you no. Know? Depending on what kind of procedure it is, yeah. I do sort of offload the the weight of the scope sometimes just by like resting it up against my body uh-huh. or putting it on the bed. Um, but you know, ergonomics is actually a really hot topic within yeah. GI as well because you know over the, over years, you know, you can really develop shoulder problems and back issues, especially because imagine. yeah, in advance in Dossie, we're often wearing lead aprons, which is an added weight as well. Um, so yeah, these are really valid questions because yeah, it wears on us. When did the I, and if you don't know, this is completely fine. When did endoscopes first come into play? When did we first have a camera on the end of a tube that we were sticking into people? Well, I would say it was probably the early to mid last century, um, but it originally was a rigid scope. So if oh, you can imagine, it was God. a very different kind of procedure. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're flexible, where we can actually you know bend the tip and yeah. you know, um, and it's just a, a totally different experience for the patient as well. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of advancement and, you know, advanced endoscopy as a field really, I think over the past two, three decades came into its prime. Like before that, it really didn't exist. And it's because of all the new technology developments. No, it seems, it seems really cool. And I can see how you're, I'm inter- so I'm interested in gastroenterology too. It's so early for me. I have to do the internal medicine first uh-huh. and then I have to do, of course, gastroenterology if that's still, in- but advanced endoscopy sounds super cool to me. Super yeah. cool. But let's back up to you. Like, okay. Enough about me. Let's go. Let's, <laughs> did you know in medical school you wanted to do gastroenterology or no? Not at all. Not at you all. know, I, I kept an open mind um, during med school. I thought I was going to do everything from neurology to orthopedic surgery wow. to plastics. And I ultimately decided on internal medicine because I was actually not interested in GI at the time, mm. but in pulmonary critical care. Mm. And uh, once I started internal medicine residency, I explored interventional radiolo- or uh, sorry, interventional cardiology. Mm-hmm. And realized that that wasn't for me either. And then that's when I decided halfway through residency that I was going to do gastroenterology. Wow, wow. So was it uh, a moment in residency? that, or Was it a slow burn? Was there like a moment where you're like, wait a second, what's the guy doing in the room over there with the tube? I want to do that. That sounds cool. Or was it just like, you know, I kind of like the the digestive system, kind of like the idea around being this in this profession. And I'll do it. And over time it happened. There Was, was there no any epiphany event or anything like that? Yeah, there wasn't really an epiphany. I think it was kind of um, in some ways process of elimination and Mm -hmm. in other ways kind of just uh, discovery. So going through med school, I think I always liked kind of the more procedural side of things. And but I also really respected the internal medicine residents that I worked with. So that's what drove me into the residency program. And once I was there, I realized, oh, I really do enjoy procedures a lot more. And, you know, the pulmonary critical care part of it, I thought was really cool. You know, I still think it's super cool. I really enjoy the critical care portion, but maybe not so much the pulmonary, the lung disease side of things. And then for cardiology, also think that what they do is just phenomenal um, and clearly very, you know, critical. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think it was very confined to one main organ system, whereas in GI, there's just a ton of variety. Um, and, you know, kind of the procedural aspect of things just was... A little spoke to me a little bit more. Um, it was much more macro, I would say, rather yeah. than kind of like micro. And uh, and really, I noticed that all my friends were going into GI as well. And that's when I started thinking, okay, like what is it about this field that you know that was attracting everybody? Because I wanted to learn more. And once I did learn more, um, that's you know I, I was hooked. 
And what was learning more? Was it being participating more procedures? Was it kind of talking to more GI doctors? Was it watching YouTube videos of endoscopies? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say YouTube videos, but back then I feel like there wasn't as much uh, on YouTube about uh -huh. this. Um, you don't live stream your endoscopies or anything like that? Yeah, no, and back then I don't know if anyone was. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think I, I definitely spoke to more GIs. Um, and, you know, got involved in some research as well and, and just read up a little bit more about kind of what was happening. Back in the kind of late 2000s, there was a movement called um, NOTES, which stands for like natural orifice kind of endoscopic approaches to surgery. And, um, and basically what that movement was about was trying to think about all the surgical procedures and see how they could make them more uh, minimally invasive mm -hmm. with endoscopy. And I think that Seeing that kind of in the wake of that movement, I was able to appreciate kind of so much of what GI was uh, was doing and where it was going. And so that's really, um, you know, what got me into it That's more. interesting. And then in regards to the critical care aspect, there are certain times in the hospital, right, where you're the only guy that can kind of come in and save the day, right? I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. If it, I'm just thinking... I'm thinking like variceal bleeds and things mm -hmm. like this. Like if it's an esophageal variceal bleed, like you're the guy that's called, right? Yeah, there are certain procedures, just like in any field, there are yeah. emergencies that yeah. we have to deal with. And in GI, like general GI, most commonly are bleeding yeah. events, like variceal bleeds, like you said, if someone's vomiting blood and we got to yeah. go down and figure out what's going on. Um, also, you know, uh, food impactions are uh, another one or, you know, swallowed foreign objects um, or like colonic obstructions. Yeah. So in advanced endoscopy, though, the main thing that we deal with are either, it's either cholangitis, which is mm -hmm. infection of the uh, bile duct um, due to maybe a stone or something else, like causing the bile mm -hmm. to not be able to flow out the way it should. Mm -hmm. um, or... Uh, a perforation, like esophageal perforations, for instance, after some type of procedure. And interestingly, in the past, we you know traditionally think of perforations yeah. as something that surgeons have to handle. But there are times where we can actually deal with wow. it ourselves with devices like endoscopic suturing devices and whatnot. That's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. So before you got to advanced endoscopy, what was the fellowship like? What is the GI fellowship like? Are you doing rounds in the hospital a lot, like an internal medicine doctor? Are you in the uh, the rooms doing scopes the whole time? What does it look like? Yeah, I would say that most fellowship programs are focused on inpatient GI, Got it. which is very different from outpatient GI because you are dealing with more urgent kind of conditions. Um, but it also depends on what fellowship program you're in. You know, mm -hmm. some are more clinical heavy, and others are more research uh, centered. And so I was at a more research heavy program, which meant that, you know, my clinical work was very front-loaded. So mm -hmm. my first year was very intense in the hospital, like all the time rounding, seeing patients, seeing consults. Um, some uh, hospital or programs have consult services where you're there to kind of consult on top of a primary team. Um, others have their own primary teams and have to like not only manage the GI side of things, but really? also the medicine side of things. Yeah. So, you know, it really depends on what your program is yeah. like and where you go. Um, and that might be, you know, a reason why you want to go to one program over another. Yeah. Did you like your fellowship? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, Brigham and Women's uh, is a place that is more academic in the traditional sense of the word. Um, but because of that reason, and it attracts faculty that are very innovative, mm -hmm. kind of really pushing the envelope and, um, and, you know, at the cutting edge of the field. And then you did like two fellowships, right? Yeah. But, you, but did you do, 
I, I remember we were talking earlier and you said you did a fellowship during the fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? So because my uh, program was more research oriented, it, it allowed for more time to do mm -hmm. research or other things. And so it was almost an expectation to do something else. And because the leader, you know, father of bariatric endoscopy, which is kind of endoscopic weight loss procedures, um, what is at Brigham and Women's Hospital... Uh, I, you know, naturally was exposed to it, got interested in it. So I spent my third year doing that second fellowship. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of built into my three-year fellowship program. And then on top of that, I also got my master's in public health wow. during fellowship as well. So unlike what a lot of people might assume, it wasn't during medical school. It was actually during fellowship. Yeah. What was, what was the most time-intensive part of your training? Was it residency? Was it fellowship? Was it the advanced endoscopy fellowship in that, in that final year? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think um, residency was probably the most time intensive. Mm. It also was the least flexible in the sense that, you know, there are random days of the week where you're given off and you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have weekends. And, and so it was just a little less kind of, um, uh, yeah, it wasn't um, as kind of the normal schedule that you would expect. Advanced endoscopy was very time intensive as well, but it was a little more of a traditional kind of Monday to Friday mm -hmm. schedule. So, um, you know, it allowed for, you know, you to be able to carry out a normal life yeah. more or yeah, less. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was still very time intensive, early mornings, late nights, kind of procedures all the way through. And, you know, when you're in the hospital doing these procedures, you're constantly on. Yeah. And so it is, you know, both physically and mentally... Uh, taxing. Wow. Wow. And what is, can you tell me a little bit more about this obesity medicine? Is it, because I'm thinking of counseling patients, you know, to mm -hmm. eat less and exercise more, but is it more procedures? Is it a little bit of both? What is, what is obesity medicine? Yeah. So obesity medicine, you know, even outside of gastroenterology, yeah. there are internal medicine doctors or other doctors who can have a focus in obesity medicine. And a lot of it is counseling, but also kind of an understanding of prevention and, and also treatment. So like mm -hmm. medications and what other kind of um, treatments are available. And often that also means referring to a proceduralist mm -hmm. who can do endoscopies or surgery as well. So I think it's an understanding that there's a spectrum of um, of treatments uh, for obesity. And then um, and then from there, kind of following patients long-term because yeah. it's not just kind of a one-off treatment. Yeah. Um, it's really, you know, a chronic condition that requires a lot of uh, a lot of uh, partnership, I think, with yeah. the patient. And you have this special combo for these obesity patients, right? Because you got the GI, you got the internal medicine, the advanced endoscopy. Are you doing, um, do they do, they don't do uh, endoscopic like Rue NYs or anything like that. That's not a thing, right? Well, no, yeah, the, yeah. Not, not, not per se. Yeah. I mean, we have the ability nowadays to place stents to go to do kind of a bypass yeah. procedure, but not specifically for weight loss purposes. Okay. Um, but there are, you know, kind of what the surgeons do for with a sleeve, which is mm. the most common kind of weight loss surgery nowadays, we're able to do create a sleeve as well without oh. removing part of the stomach. We're just sewing the stomach down um, from the inside to make it more narrow. I so see. it has the shape of a sleeve, but you're not removing part of the stomach the way Got the surgeons it. do. Do you have to make sure there's no hole so there's no like pocket, that little pocket of stomach that you're cutting off, right? Yeah. I guess you have to make very sure that there's no like little <laughs> hole that the food's going to leak in there and then get trapped. Kind of, I'm just as random. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's really, um, you know, not that bad. Like yeah. the way we place our sutures, it yeah. sort of minimizes that. Uh, but, um, you know, the weight loss outcomes are admittedly not as 
uh, high as the surgical procedures, mm, but okay. at the same time, you know, there's also a little less, less risk, risk associated. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then you said the advanced endoscopy fellowship was the most time intensive. Other than the time, what was it like? Did you love it? Did you like it more than GI fellowship and more than internal medicine residency? Yeah, I think the further along I went in my training, the more I enjoyed it because yeah. it's just more focused yeah. and like what I wanted to do, you yeah. know, ultimately and, and much more relevant too because yeah. you were closer to kind of finishing training and knowing that, okay, this is what the next step as, you know, a full-time faculty member, as an attending would be like. So it was much more relevant. Yeah. And then the, the, the mainstay of the training is, I think you mentioned this earlier, you're putting stents and things like this. Is there any, any other examples you can think of that mainly kind of, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but clinical focused yeah. advanced endoscopists do? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's also, you know, cancer uh, diagnosis, like biopsying tumors mm. in the pancreas or other areas, and um, and then treating complications of that too. So like you said, stents, but also, you know, um, there are some modalities where we're able to go in and, you know, actually melt away the tumor using lasers, using other types of like photodynamic therapy. Wow. Um, also just removing stones, simple things like that, dragging out stones, crushing stones in the bile duct. Um, and then what I mentioned earlier about third space endoscopy is yeah. an exciting field because when you're able to go between the layers of the wall of the gut, yeah. you can carve out tumors um, if necessary uh -huh. without, you know, with preventing a uh, whole, you're right, an yeah. open surgery or resection, you're able to um, uh, spare patients a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of potential risk with, you know, people who've had to previously undergo a gastrectomy and have yeah. part of their stomach removed, now you can carve out a, a tumor and leave the rest of the anatomy intact. Yeah. There's also conditions like achalasia, which is where the bottom of the esophagus doesn't relax and people mm. have swallowing issues. And rather than having an open surgery for mm -hmm. that, we're able to um, go in between the layers of the wall, cut the muscle, and oh. relax it now. So it really spares patients a lot That's of That's really yeah, cool. Because historically, did they used to just dilate those things? Like by force from the inside, right? Yeah, that's like first line. And there's, uh, but then, you know, over time, if that doesn't work, mm. then we've got to, you know, think about a way to actually cut the muscle. How new is this third spacing this procedures because it sounds really cool. Uh, just within the past, you know, I'd say um, five, ten years wow. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Wow. And 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 are there any other? Because you said okay, you're gonna get some tumors, mm -hmm. uh, achalasia, anything else you can think? I'm just. It seems like. Yeah. Um, well, other things. <laughs> Quizzing you here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there's other things. Well, not necessarily advanced endoscopy, but just general GI. Yeah. You know how we treat. Bleeding, for instance, there's like so many different ways that we go about that. You know, mechanically, we can clip, we can burn, we can uh, spray. There's like hemostatic powders now where you just spray things yeah. on and then, um, and you know, you're able to uh, stop the bleeding that way. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of other um, types of cool procedures you can do. That's so cool. So you do the fellowship. Now you're an attending. You're in a clinical attending. Not now, now, because we'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, but then you're a clinical attending. What's that like? What's it like to be an attending, finally? Yeah, you know, I think everyone's experience varies a little bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, when you start out, it's a little rough because you're having to make the transition from a trainee yeah. into actually taking responsibility mm -hmm. entirely for your patients and calling the shots and making those important decisions. Um, 
And, uh, and really, it's also kind of managing relationships with your patients, with your referring doctors, um, and, you know, uh, and just, you know, um, seeing how, you, how to grow your practice, how to develop your practice. But also, it's lifelong learning, you know, yeah. because these procedural techniques change, the science also evolves, you kind of have to keep up with it. So, you know, what's being done now is different from 10 years ago. And yeah. 10 years from now, it's, you know, similarly also going to be different. Going to be different. And then, you're, and then you're a leader as well, right? How is that? You have to lead medical students and fellows and nurses and PAs and yeah. all these technicians. And what is that like? It's actually, I think, a good thing because when you have students, part of the reason why I like to you know, remain in an academic center is yeah. when you're teaching fellows and residents, you kind of have to keep up. You have a responsibility to, you know, um, know what the latest and greatest is yeah. and, and it keeps things fresh. Yeah. What is the best part about being a clinical GI doctor? Um, I think it's probably, you know, what comes with a procedural field, which is the gratification, the instant gratification with, uh, you know, having a procedure be done and knowing that the patient is better because of it. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes when you're treating chronic conditions, like medically, you might not see very dramatic results right away. Mm. And um, and so this gives you that instant satisfaction. And I think for GI specifically, because what you're treating is very macroscopic, you, um, you know, it's very tangible. You know, you're removing a stone, you're, you know, stenting open a, a blockage. You know, yeah. these are things that you can actually see are making a, a difference. Yeah. And the counterpoint to that question, of course, is what is the worst thing about being a GI doctor, a clinical GI doctor? Ooh, the worst thing I would say is probably just like, uh, not specific to GI, but just the dealing with the bureaucracy mm. of our really complex health system. And I would say probably what a lot of doctors um, would say about documentation mm. and um, dealing with insurance companies, like those things were, you know, certainly not immune to in GI as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, I know that makes sense. And I'm going to just put this out there briefly. So right now, what's the percentage of time that you're practicing in as a clinician. Yeah, so I am still 20% clinical. 20% yeah. clinical. Okay, we're going to get to that. I just want to do that <laughs> as a little foreshadowing event because I keep on talking about in the past clinical stuff, clinical stuff. When you were an 100% practicing clinical clinician, uh, what was your average schedule like? What would an average day look like? Because I'm in an academic center, they also have time set aside for us to do kind of administrative and academic mm -hmm. activities. So even though I was 100% full-time, yeah. there was usually a day that was more research, kind of academic, administrative day. Got it. There's one day that was um, devoted to seeing patients, new patients or follow-up patients in clinic. Um, the third day would be, you know, inpatient procedures where we would cover all the advanced procedures mm -hmm. um, for hospitalized patients that day. And then the other two days were outpatient procedures. God. So we are very procedurally heavy compared to some other, you know, yeah. medical fields. And so, you know, if you think about it, only one clinic day and yeah. the rest being procedural, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Uh, do you, so you do, you do see, do you see outpatient, like you don't see general GI issues in the outpatient. You would just see kind of advanced endoscopy follow-ups or prepar preparations. Right, yeah, I for the see. most part, okay. yeah. yeah exactly. And then the academic day, is that teaching classes? Is that conducting research? Is that having meetings? What is what is that usually entail? Yeah, because we're so subspecialized, yeah. you know, really the main training that we do is on the job with our advanced endoscopy mm. fellow. 
But we do have, um, you know, requirements in teaching uh, kind of the general GI fellows, lecturing every yeah. once in a while. Um, I have a lecture a year for the medical students. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the time is, yeah, meetings and research type meetings and, um, you know, actually doing the research. And, um, and so there's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. What do you think are the characteristics of someone that would excel as a gastroenterologist? I think that... Um, Having uh, interest in digestive diseases, yeah. first of all, <laughs> um, oftentimes procedural interest as well. Like if yeah. you don't want to do procedures or you're not comfortable with that, um, then it's probably not for you. Although there are more medically geared subspecialties within mm -hmm. gastroenterology because advanced endoscopy is not the only mm -hmm. subspecialty. Um, but uh, but I think that those are probably like the main things that you would want to consider just as, as like a screening test yeah. you know, before getting yeah. into GI. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other possibility further subspecializations after gastroenterology? Yeah, definitely. So um, aside from general GI, which is a little bit of everything, mm -hmm. so it doesn't mean that it's completely separate from these other fields, but especially in academic centers or more kind of tertiary care centers, there are specific specialists who are focused on inflammatory bowel disease, mm -hmm. um, GI motility, um, liver transplant, like taking care of patients before and after they get their transplant. Um, sometimes uh, functional GI disorders, advanced endoscopy. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Medical pancreatology mm -hmm. is another one. Um, and some of these fields actually have dedicated fellowship programs and yeah. or like a whole fellowship kind of system. So like advanced endoscopy, there's an entire nationwide match. Yeah. So it's kind of like a different match. Wow. Uh, or, or another match on top of what I had to go through, you know, yeah, between yeah, yeah. that's one residency mm -hmm. and residency and fellowship. Wow. That's really interesting. I think that's going to be really helpful to definitely people who are interested. It helps one of me. I'm going to take notes later when I watch <laughs> back and edit this episode. Let's get on to the good stuff because, of course, that's really interesting. But you have this really amazing and interesting background career. You're a social media superstar. You've done things at the White House. And now you're working as this chief of business for one of the biggest, it is it the biggest medical device company yeah. in the world, right? <laughs> what, yeah. So let's start with that. How? What is this job? What is this Medscape thing? Yeah, so, you know, chief medical officer for Medtronic, the biggest device company in the world. Um, I'm the chief medical officer for the GI business. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's... The CMO job differs for, you know, different CMOs across um, the business and probably differs, you know, it also differs if you do a chief medical officer search on Google. Yeah. Often what you're going to get are chief medical officers of hospital systems, which, which is an entirely different job mm. as well. So for me, you know, for a medical device company, you know, we're involved in the development and commercialization of medical devices, like all the fancy tools that we use in advanced endoscopy, you know, are made by medical device companies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, for me, I directly oversee certain functions within the business, such as medical education, where we actually educate the doctors on how to use these devices, um, clinical training for our sales team, you know, because these are sales reps, they are there to support the doctors when they're getting to know how to use these procedures and often have to in service the staff um, at the hospital and how to support the doctors in using these devices and also kind of physician relationships and society partnerships as well because we partner with the societies often to support the programming and and do things like that and um 
And so that's really what I directly oversee. And then as an individual contributor, I'm also involved in a little bit of, you know, clinical trial design, research and development, and also business development, which is like a particular interest of mine, because those are the conversations where we're talking to a bunch of different startups Mm. throughout the year and seeing if there's potential partnership opportunities or, you know, potential acquisitions that we want to make if we're going to, you know, buy the technology from an existing startup to include into our portfolio and actually kind of make a make it more widely available to everyone across the country. That's interesting. Or the world. So business development is like um, you is is so you're investing in companies, and this is really where you're deciding where the Medscape money, where the research Medscape money is going to go. It's Medtronic. a Medtronic. Medtronic. Medscape. <laughs> That's what I was. I was researching the happiness and things scores. Yes. Where is Medscape going with their next device? No. Medtronic. <laughs> Medtronic, it's a Sunday morning, people. Okay, so med, so, <laughs> so I do the, know the Medscape guys too. But. You do? You know the people that do that run Medscape? Yeah, I do. What are they? How did they do that? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Like what? Uh, what that? What goes into that? Yeah. But that's okay. That, I'm just interested. Med, that's so funny. Okay, Medtronic. So Medtronic. <laughs> so. So you're deciding where the Medtronic money goes. So you're saying, you know, we love this scope. We're going to put all the money in the research into developing, commercializing, and kind of making this widely. Is this also doing like, like uh, what is it, 510K? What is it called? Medical yeah. device approvals so, and things like that? Yeah, so, you know, 510K is one of the pathways to get a medical device approved. Um, that's more kind of in the realm of regulatory. I see. Uh, but yes, but for like, uh, let's say somebody has a an idea or a prototype of a new device that they're they're making and they need to you know do all the testing um, and then go through trials to get it get potentially get approval by the FDA yes there are considerations like making sure that they can get through the regulatory you know agencies mm-hmm. here the FDA in particular um, and uh, yeah that is that do, does go into the decision making for you know business development agreements how do you get a job like this how does someone because you've been you weren't attending for you yeah. aren't attending for how how many years now not I'm very junior in my career yeah. compared to a lot of other chief medical officers especially at publicly traded companies yeah. like Medtronic so I um, am only four years out from training. Wow. Um, but, and I didn't anticipate going into a role like this at this point in my career either. I was actually approached by my current boss, the Medtronic GI mm-hmm. president, uh, Gio DiNapoli, um, with this opportunity. And so when I was presented with this, I had to do a lot of soul searching to really figure out, okay, is this really a path I want to take? Cause it's so different. Yeah. It hasn't really been done before within GI because, um, in a company of this scale, Previously, there are other uh, companies that have chief medical officers, but they're not GI doctors. And so, you know, here I am walking into a GI business as the first chief medical officer for the business. And so there are a lot of unknowns, um, but also it was exciting to kind of think about the prospect of it. Can you take me a little bit more into your head? How do you go to start to decide? Because it's a big decision, right? Clinical medicine versus industry. Yeah. Well, I think one key thing for me was I didn't want to give up clinical medicine. I thought that the two should go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wanted to continue my clinical practice to to a certain extent. And so I said that in order for this to work, I need to be able to still practice. Um, And so that's what made it a little bit more challenging, I think, than a traditional um, you know, step away from clinical mm-hmm. medicine. But uh, but yeah, I had to really think about, okay, what was it? Where were my priorities? Do I really enjoy kind of the academic trajectory? Um, and, uh, and, you know, what was it about this 
opportunity at Medtronic that I really um, enjoyed. And, and so ultimately, it was because of, you know, technology. That's really what got me into um, GI in the first place. Mm-hmm. And to have the opportunity to potentially play a role in technology development yeah. was very exciting for me. I think part of my goal with being on social media for the longest time was just reaching the, a wider audience. And um, But, you know, in that world of social media, I never really had a clear direction of where I would end up with that. Mm-hmm. And this was a very tangible way of saying, okay, here I am also having a population level impact with, you know, introducing new technologies that could impact millions of people around the mm-hmm. world potentially. So that was super exciting as well. Um, and, you know, just also the idea that this was like a global opportunity as well. Just, uh, yeah, super exciting for many reasons that way. That's super cool. Do you ever anticipate leaving fully clinical medicine? I know you said you think they go hand in hand. Yeah. But if you talk about business development, it's interesting. Business development, is it's, it's not very much clinical in, involvement at all, right? right. Yeah, I, you know, I can't say, like, never say never. Yeah. But <laughs> I think for the time being in medical devices, I think that this is, you know, it makes a lot of sense right now. Like, it. without um, having that clinical um, kind of uh, exposure you know, right now in the short term, since I'm still early in this role yeah. at Medtronic, it might not seem like it makes much of a difference. But fast forward five years, 10 years from now, when the technology or the techniques have evolved, you know, there are other technologies out there. Mm-hmm. Like I would have no clear grasp uh, uh, as to like what doctors are actually yeah. doing out there and yeah. how they're feeling about these technologies. And I think having um, my kind of my ear, uh, eyes, and ears in the field are—it's really helpful that way. No, this 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 makes definitely a lot of sense. Um, and then, what does your schedule look like right now? So, let's say—is it like one week a month? Because you said 80, 20 percent, or is it one week every five weeks? That is in the hospital, and then four weeks working. What does it look like? Yeah, on average, it's about a week a month, Got but it. it's not necessarily all consolidated into one week. I see. So uh, sometimes it can be a little hectic, yeah. kind of uh, you know having to come back just for a day. And then leaving oh, again, God. but um, but yeah, my weeks are pretty unpredictable. I am traveling a lot, um, less so now that you know it's like the winter time. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was traveling pretty much almost on a weekly basis, wow. going to different hospitals, having different conversations with various key opinion leaders around the country, going to courses and conferences. Um, so you know, it was exciting, and you know, I I think that it's been a great learning opportunity to get a sense of the entire landscape of GI and understand healthcare in general and how it operates outside of my own single institution. Yeah. Are there any specific nuggets of things that you've learned in this past year, specifically in the, what you just mentioned, GI landscape? Yeah, you know, I think that it's just become much more apparent to me that um, consolidation of a lot of GI practices has accelerated a lot over the past couple mm. of years. And we have these mega GI practices out there that span multiple states wow. and are able to actually, you know, help out with research and often have, you know, way more physicians and patients than any single academic center out there. Wow. And um, and so it's interesting to see, you know, what they're able to do and they can move, I think, with a little more agility than um, some universities too. Yeah. So we'll see kind of how the landscape continues to evolve. But I've also... 
you know, had a lot of lessons learned about, um, you know, what it takes for doctors to adopt new technologies and exactly mm. how innovative GI is versus maybe some other specialties. Yeah. I think we're less early adopters than we think we are. Got it. So you bring some amazing new technology and you have evidence, you have these things to show them. And some doctors are like, nah, I want to keep writing my notes on paper, basically. Kind yeah, of you know, it's that's a, a good analogy. Um, you know, I think... By nature, I think a lot of doctors are risk averse and and want to do things the way they've always done it. Yeah. Um, and so it does does take a little bit of convincing to get them, you know, on board and then past the learning curve of using a new technology. So, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it uh, even after a new product is introduced onto the market. Wow, wow, and that sounds like a lot of trap. Do you think you're busier now? Or when you were a clinician, were you busier? 100% clinician. I think I'm busier now. I think my hours are probably longer now, um, juggling all these different roles. Um, because if you think about it, even though it's yeah. 20% academic and clinical, mm -hmm. there's a lot of spillover with like, you know, patient follow-up yeah. or like doing research because I'm still actively doing research yeah. and involved in like societies, you know, from that standpoint. Um but uh, and so the hours are longer, but I would say the intensity of it is maybe a little less in that I'm not, you know, having to focus the way I do during a procedure mm -hmm. where it's like constant, um, you know, laser focus for hours on end, which can be really mentally yeah. You know, draining. Yeah. What is an average week uh, at? I'm about I was about to say Medscape again. What was an average <laughs> week like at Medtronic? Are you flying on a Monday, coming home on a Thursday? Are you waking up to emails at seven and meetings at eleven? Or what is what is it, it, anything? An average day. Um, we try to keep it as you know normal as possible yeah. to a regular kind of like eight to five ish uh -huh. type schedule. But I mean, there are definitely weeks where I'm in multiple cities. You know, there mm. was one week where I was in Salt Lake, then Baltimore, then Orlando, and wow. then San Francisco all in the same week. That I won't I won't forget that week. Jeez. And then um, and then there are other weeks where I am in the same place for the whole whole time. And their meetings. You know, I think. The fact that we're doing a lot of meetings via Zoom yeah. is probably different than how this role maybe looked a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so I only know what you know how I do it nowadays. Um, but yeah, it can be a lot of travel for for that reason. But you know, we try not to do things after hours just to maintain a little bit of yeah. kind of work life balance. But it's hard because we're across the country, across the world. There are yeah. different time zones involved, and uh, and we have to kind of. Take that into consideration. And being in this leadership position, I mean, you kind of, kind of always have to have the phone on, right? If something goes yeah. crazy wrong, right? But I, you know, I, I've been used to that. Yeah, maybe like True, growing I guess. Yeah, up yeah. in this generation and being on social media all the time, mm -hmm. I am on my phone anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me as much as I think maybe it would other people. Um, and so, yeah, that part doesn't bother me too much. Yeah. But I do carry two phones now, so that's yeah. the difference. Wow. Two yeah. phones. Oh, I guess hospital phone. Yeah, and then the Medtronic phone. Because which one's the personal phone? The the hospital one the because hospital that's one. Okay. the one where I um you know have epic access and uh, have patient information so I wanted to keep that separate yeah you know um from my did Medtronic they give you phone. an iPhone what did the phone did they give you yeah I have I have an fourteen or thirteen did they give no you? so I personally 12? have a ten. Uh, 12, 12. Okay, good. Yeah, because I personally have a My 13. My voice is getting higher. <laughs> <laughs> I personally have a 13. Yeah. And then, and then um, when I entered a year ago, they gave yeah. me a 12. So Okay, well, we got to upgrade that soon. I think, <laughs> what is this? I mean, you're heading all these, the, the, and they're giving you a 12. This is, hopefully they'll hear this.
this. We'll send this directly to the boss, <laughs> and you know, you'll immediately get a 14 max. Maybe I'm happy with it right now. It does yeah, the well, job. Don't say that. We'll get we'll get we'll get you an improved one. So it's a big decision, right? It's mm-hmm. it's kind of you've made the decision, I think, really to go on a different path than maybe the average because. Per- I'm in med school, right? I used to think, and which is one of the reasons I love talking to someone like you, you go to med school, you become a doctor, you go through residency, maybe a fellowship, and then you enter maybe academia or a clinical practice, and you're just a clinician for 30 years. Maybe you try to get a leader, so you become a assistant professor. I don't know what the order. It's associate, assistant, I forget. Uh-huh. And then full professor, and then maybe you become a chair or something like that. Was there any thought of these different paths and the decision to kind of go away from the completely academic medicine path to kind of the industry path? Yeah, you know, I don't know every single role in the hospital. I mean, I only really had visibility into, you know, who was in my division. And so, you know, ahead of me, there was the chief of endoscopy and then the chief of our division of GI. And then on top of that, there was a chair of medicine. Mm -hmm. And these are all kind of like the clinical leadership, right? Like there's also hospital administration, like the CEO of the hospital and or like of the med school, like the deans of the med school and whatnot. And that I didn't explore quite as much. So the way I really thought about it for myself was like, okay, looking at kind of um, the the most traditional pathway, um, you know, within our division, like chief of endoscopy, uh, chief of the division, did I really want to take on those roles one day? Is that really what I was working toward? And if I had to be honest with myself, I don't think that that was something that I was interested in. Um, and I was very, you know, and there are plenty of people who aren't and can continue practicing in their roles like for their entire careers. Um, but I wanted some sort of like career progression. And I think that as much as I appreciate the one-on-one patient interaction, yeah. I was always looking for a way to do something more on the population yeah. level. Yeah. Is it very difficult to advance your career inside of academic medicine? Um, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I think uh, because it's, um, I think, mainly based on research productivity mm-hmm. and publications. Um, so, you know, that is, um, you know, that is really dependent on how active you are on research, sometimes yeah. dependent on how able you are to get funding for your yeah. research um, and what kind of research that you are involved with. So, it varies uh, a lot, even within GI, because you know some research has to be is more kind of basic science yeah. uh, based, and then there's others that are more like clinical research yeah. and just looking at patient outcomes based on the procedures that we're doing, which is more what advanced endoscopy is is like. And yeah. so, a lot of the innovation historically maybe was in academia for advanced endoscopy, where yeah. all these new devices were being developed. But I would say that you know there's plenty of innovation that's done outside of um, academia nowadays, you know, when it comes to device development and whatnot, because it is so costly to do it. Yeah. Um, that it's kind of uh, shifted in that direction. It's a really interesting and important answer because I've spent, I spent a year at a VC fund and it all, it opened my mind completely because I had no idea. These are the companies, companies like the company you're at right now are responsible for deciding the way medicine goes forward in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're funding these companies with these new ideas and they're saying, listen, you're going to get the money to go forward. And you know, we don't think this idea is going to have as much of an impact on patients, which is a really important sentence, right? You're deciding which devices, which drugs are going to have the most impacts on patients. And I always would think it's academic research and things like this, but no, there's money that needs to come into play to fund these things. These things are hugely expensive. Some drugs take a billion dollars to create. Some drugs take, you know, multiple billions of dollars. I mean, you look at these 
Alzheimer's drugs that went way yeah. down the drain and the, with the genomics and things like that. It's just, uh, it's crazy. So it's, I think it's a really, really interesting point. And I think you're specifically cool to talk to about it because you come from the top research institutions right in the world. You come from like Harvard, Columbia, these things. And it's very interesting to me, someone with your background who says, listen, this academic medicine, this academic research path, you've done a lot of thinking and you've decided, listen, I think the place where I'm going to have the most impact personally on patients is going this other path. Yeah, you know, I think everyone has a different journey. And, yeah. you know, I'm definitely not saying that academic medicine, that, that you know, the innovation that happens there is still very important to kind of drive our clinical, you know, decision making. And, you know, a lot of the innovation does start in academia. And then to scale it, I think sometimes, mm. you know, ha you have to bring in a bigger strategic partner. Um, and, and I think that, you know, academic institutions themselves are also, you know, getting more and more involved mm -hmm. in, in innovation themselves and having venture funds of their yeah. own and fostering innovation. So I think that they recognize that and are also you know, shifting their their way of operating. Yeah, that's so, it's so cool. Let's talk about social media. Okay. How do you get to the White House? How do you talk, <laughs> do you talk to the president? Are you like sitting in that fancy Oval Office room saying, listen, the nuke code should be XYZ instead <laughs> of a new alphanumeric, we should just, what, what do you, what is that? I did not get a chance to meet the president <laughs> okay. of the US, I, which would have been super cool. Yeah. Some of my colleagues actually did. Really? Yeah, but, um, but I was basically asked to be a part of this healthcare leaders in social media roundtable by a former White House fellow who was in the po Office of Public Engagement. Mm. And, you know, what they were realizing was all a lot of the awesome new policies that were being rolled out, that wasn't getting message to the people who are actually potentially going to benefit from those mm -hmm. policies. And being that a lot of people consume their information and healthcare information now on social media nowadays or the internet in general, you know, they felt, you know, maybe a good way to go about this is having uh, some of these health professionals who are active on social media help us with that messaging. Is that So that's really how I got involved in that specific project. I mean, I ended up going to the White House a second time Twice with in my the White House. Medtronic wow. role um, just to start conversations with the Cancer Moonshot team there. Um, but that's a whole different story. Yeah. But yeah, the social media journey has been a decade-long thing for me. How did it start, this whole social media thing? Well, was, was it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? What were it was Twitter. So Twitter. I, I mean, I've uh, grown up in the social media era. So even before Facebook, you know, there was MySpace mm -hmm. and other things like that. And so Facebook came out my freshman year in college, and I loved it. I've always loved social media and loved how it was able to, you know, bring us together. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but then over time, I thought, okay, I'm spending so much time on social media. How do I make this more productive? And I also noticed when I was in training that there were patients coming into the hospital making decisions that were wrong because of things they were hearing, you know, through TV, through the media, through social media. And at the time, I had spent a couple um, weeks at ABC News uh, to learn how medical information got to the general public through the news and who was making those decisions, who was vetting the information. And in that process, they were using Twitter to host weekly Twitter chats about different health topics. So I was like, oh, wow, there are people showing up to this and maybe I should start using Twitter for a more kind of productive purpose. Um, and, and so I started live tweeting conferences that I was going to, tweeting about what I was learning in fellowship, and then ultimately started, you know, adopting other uh, social media platforms, Instagram, then YouTube and TikTok and all these others, and, uh, and kind of had to learn it all on my own. And 
um, and learn a lot of lessons along the way about how to better message, you know, um, health information to the general public. Mm-hmm. And do it in a you know sometimes fun you know less boring way. Interesting. Um, exactly, and uh, and that's really how it came about. So I think I would say the origin of all this was based on misinformation. And I think nowadays it's easy to assume that oh yeah, misinformation on social media. Like obviously there's a ton of it. Like we should watch out for it. But you know, a couple of years ago that I don't think we had quite as much insight. Um, into into all the misinformation out there and certainly not as much into health misinformation. I think it took it took a whole pandemic for us to recognize that and acknowledge that oh social media can really have an impact on public health and public opinion of healthcare. Um, and and I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, repercussions um, of the, the pandemic through, you know, the effects of social media. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think the same way, actually. I'm trying to think like when I was a kid, like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, and seeing an MD, if I saw MD or doctor or anything on the TV, you know, Dr. Phil or, or something else, I'd just assume they're right. Because mm-hmm. they say MD, they say doctor, everything they say is right. But come to know now that maybe not necessarily, again, intentions are whatever, but maybe the information correct or mm-hmm. not correct. I'd never question it until I tr- thinking personally, I don't think I started to question things I saw on the internet, which is a crazy thing to say, until like <laughs> maybe five or six years ago. Yeah. I don't think I did. I think I just saw something, maybe because I wasn't as involved or personally involved, but I'd see again, MD or doctor or even like PhD, and I'd be like they're right. They must be right because they're MD, doctor, yeah. PhD. And you know, within our own field, uh, when I was starting out, I had um, some of the faculty members who uh, were, you know, teaching me thought that it was a total waste of time that I was spending on social media and was very fortunate to encounter some other mentors who said, you know, there might be something here. Mm. Maybe you should develop it, but turn it into something more academic because that way it's more kind of legitimized and accepted. And so that's exactly what I did. I yeah. started doing research in social media, publishing on social media type projects, helping all, all of our professional societies within my field launched their social media presences. So, um, so you know, that's it's been a long time coming. And I think a lot of people who see my social media presence kind of superficially don't see that there was a lot kind of behind the scenes happening. I can only imagine the work that goes into it. Right. And I mean, like, and you totally understand kind of like the actual content creation part, part of it, but then actually kind of legitimizing the space. When I started on Twitter, there were probably five gastroenterologists, and wow. now there are hundreds, maybe thousands. And then, um, and then ultimately, you know, because of some of the misinformation issues yeah. that I mentioned, um, you know, some of us came together on Instagram, you know, outside of my specialty as well, and we started the Association for Healthcare Social Media, mm. which was a nonprofit um, to help educate health professionals on how to use social media. Uh, both effectively and responsibly, because mm-hmm. we recognize that you know there's a lot of ways that this could go wrong in terms of you know health professionals on social media. There have been people who've been canceled because yeah. of things that they posted, and I think it's because you know we're held to a different standard as health professionals, and we need to maintain our credibility. And when there's people out there doing things that are inappropriate or overstepping boundaries, then it really hurts all of us. Yeah, and we need to maintain the trust. In um, in healthcare, in order to have better health outcomes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's such a good point. I'd be scared though. I'm. I would be so scared. And I get it's. And I'm glad there's people like you doing this because I would be so. For example, I'm doing a video, a YouTube video around sleep and things like this, and I've been planning this for a while. 
and I'm just so scared. I'm saying, oh, for example, I talk about the association between people who sleep poorly and like not living as long. And I'm like, can I actually say that? Is that something that's backed up by the evidence? I have to make sure I say association as opposed to cause, you know, all these kind of little yes. things. But you're doing this on a daily, or we're doing, or doing this on a daily basis almost. Uh-huh. Like how do you... Do you research all these things and like have ideas that you just write on a list somewhere and say, okay, I need to research this statement, this statement, this statement? Or is it from clinical experience? If you're making comments about gastroenterology, you just know from your your decade of experience at this point that this is the correct thing and this is the wrong thing. How do you go about making medical statements on the internet? Um, I think that, yeah, a lot of it comes with clinical experience yeah. and just knowing that, okay, this, these are what the most recent yeah. guidelines state, so I don't necessarily have to look it up. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly things that I want to double check uh, just to make sure that I'm not misquoting something yeah. for sure. And and nowadays, I think that, um, you know, I, I speak a little less about GI um, kind of education as much as I want to share kind of my experience in my new role because I mm-hmm. feel like this is what's really unique that I have to offer. Um, but absolutely, I think that it, it can be difficult at first and a lot of mistakes I've made as well. You know, you kind of learn along the way um, just from feedback that you get from people who, mm-hmm. you know, comment. I mean, that's part of the beauty of social media is that you get yeah. real-time feedback. Yeah, yeah. And starting this nonprofit, being the chair of social media for a hospital, an academic hospital, do you have any advice? I guess we'll start broadly to institutions who are starting their social media account. Um, say, you know, the community college down the road wants to start their social media account. Anything mistakes you've seen people make or anything you should, okay, you should do this or don't do this. I mean, I think like any... Business, I would say that you have to know who your audience mm-hmm. is. Um, and then on top of that, I would also just keep an open mind to begin with because yeah. I, I understand from an institutional perspective, they have to weigh their risks as well. And when it comes to social media use, there's a lot that can go wrong, and the institution wants to protect themselves as well. So, you know, I, I think that because we have for a health institution, this is where. Uh, we have a kind of a, a obligation to educate our communities and be that provider of medical information and knowledge. Um, I think it's just still important to not dismiss it entirely because there are institutions out there mm-hmm. that will say, like, absolutely not, no social mm-hmm. media presence. I think even that now, they'll even say now, that. yeah. And I think that we have to really, um, you know, try to just be a little more open minded mm-hmm. and open the doors up, but. I think the other kind of underlying thing that's been difficult for any institution is that, you know, as an institution, I think the um, you can't expect to like have like a viral kind of um, uh, to have viral content all the time and then expect people to just flock to your account. Um, I think that especially post pandemic, there's or not post pandemic, but like now that we've been in the pandemic for a while, uh, people are just you know are at more of an arm's length with healthcare and. Um, and are, you know, maybe a little tired of the subject as well. So, so you know, it, it takes a little more convincing for people to get on. And also, you know, even though we know that individuals tend to fare better on social media because they're, you know, it's easier to relate to a person rather than an institution or an organization, it's hard to convince the health professionals on in their institution to get on social media because mm-hmm. it's a time commitment. So I would encourage all institutions to kind of think of ways to incentivize social media use. Um, and I know that there are some institutions out there that are looking more closely at it, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, promotion opportunities, you know, actually, you know, kind of valuing what doctors are doing, spending time educating on social media and not only just publishing mm-hmm. research papers. 
So um, hopefully one day, yeah, hopefully one day we'll see uh, the needle move a little more in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm an individual, say I'm a medical student, a resident, a fellow, an attending who wants to get started posting medical things on social media or maybe just posting in general on social media, do you have any advice to the individual? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, definitely check with your institution yeah. first because every institution has a different policy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, often they can be good partners because, yeah. you know, when you talk to the communications team, they might be able to help you out in certain ways. Yeah. Um, I'd also say don't just jump into all of the platforms all at once. You know, um, try to go one by one because um, you'll get more efficient at it over time, mm-hmm. but then you also don't want to burn out because uh, it's easy to burn out on social yeah. media too. Um, and then, you know, just uh, think about kind of put yourself in patients' shoes and make sure that, you know, you're not saying things that are potentially offensive. Um, and also, you know, um, just I think that for me, the reason why I, you know, went on certain platforms when I did was also because I had to wait until I became more of an authority in my field to mm-hmm. start talking about certain things um, and to really speak within my lane. Like, I think that when I start talking about things outside of gastroenterology, sometimes it can be a little dicey. And there are, you know, take the, you know, COVID for instance. You know, there were moments where I a very dangerous topic to post about. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, I think that I had a public health obligation to raise awareness Uh about it and say, you know, to to really encourage people to do certain things. Yeah, but um, but over time, when the questions became much more granular Mm -hmm. and more appropriate probably for a virologist or immunologist, I would refer people to those experts. So, and and that's what I tend to do, you know, when it's kind of um, outside of my own kind of area of expertise. Yeah, you're allowed to say, I don't know, even as an attending doctor, right? I think it's an important statement because a lot of times, especially some of these, uh, the the doctors I most respect in the hospital, especially in the clinical setting, is when they not only tell their students and their trainees, you know, I don't know, they also tell their patients. I don't know. I think it's one of the be- I think it's one of the most valuable and cool things I see. Yeah, I mean, I think transparency is like the way to go these days. Yeah. Like everyone is expecting more transparency and would prefer transparency, even if it's not in their favor. Um, to you know, to just you know, have full disclosure on those types yeah. of things. And I think, you know, especially for students and trainees, there was I feel I feel like I see it a little less often nowadays than it used to. Like, you know, people would call themselves doctors before graduating from med school, or you know, there's also other you know non physician health professionals who would yeah. call themselves doctors as well. And it was just you know confusing for patients. And yeah. I think that's where it goes back to putting yourself in patients' shoes yeah. and. And saying, saying, you know, asking yourself, okay, is this, am I being misleading here? Yeah. You know, how will patients perceive this? Yeah, no, it's an important statement because where is it, does it all come back to, right? It all comes back to the patients. And instead of kind of, because I get it in my, but I would, I don't think I ever would say, sometimes they introduce me as student doctor. I'd be like, whoa. But it's, I, you know, no, you I always, think that's okay. You think that's okay? <laughs> but I was like, I was like, whoa. But I usually just say medical. I think that's yeah. the best thing most people say. Uh, but it, for a patient, for a lot of patients, they don't, I didn't even know there were fellows or residents. Right. I thought everyone in the hospital was a doctor. Yeah, when I was, you know, before I entered the medical field, before I went to med school, yeah. I had no concept of what all these different terms are and like how Attending. hospitals were. Right, exactly. And what the distinction was and what level of expertise really there was. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. 
And a lot of these patients coming in the hospital, it's not, they're not like the chronic people that are there for it. It's like their first time ever. Maybe they're really sick in a really scary situation. So not only are they in a new place, but also their brain is probably not in the place that it normally is because maybe their inside's wrong, but also their outside's completely different too. Yeah, it's, it's like a totally foreign environment. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay, side point done. Where do you see the future of your social media presence going? Um, I think as I alluded to earlier, I think it's probably more about sharing my unique experience mm -hmm. being in this interesting hybrid career role um, because I do see more and more uh, people in the future potentially taking on these types of hybrid careers um, because I think that there's more to being a doctor than you know just clinical medicine and I think it's valuable for people with clinical experience to have a say and have a seat at the table when it comes to whether it's device development or or pharmaceuticals or other technologies, um, you know, because healthcare is an ecosystem. And as much as we are often the people who are, you know, on the front lines in the field with patients, you know, I think that that perspective is really valuable to other aspects of healthcare too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, sharing that experience on social media is really great. Um, and, uh, and also just, you know, I'll continue to talk about disease states because mm -hmm. I think that that's just going to be an ongoing, yeah. you know, um, directive to try to educate patients and, and everyone else about their gut health yeah. and about, you know, their GI care. Um, so, but those are kind of the areas that I'll probably be focusing more on. And, you know, I'm still going to from time to time, I think, talk about, um, you know, the training process and kind of how I got to where I mm -hmm. am and and all the trials and tribulations. Although there are times where I already feel like it's a little less relatable, I get questions about like, okay, how do I approach the MCAT? And it's like, <laughs> well, that was a long, long time ago. And <laughs> the MCAT, I think, is entirely different now. So I can't speak to it as well. But, you know, I'll try my best to, you know, share my experience because uh, I think that that's something that I probably didn't value as much as I should have in yeah. the past. Like just speaking to people with far more experience than me and understanding, okay, what is it? Like how did they come to, you know, where they are and what what influenced their decisions? Yeah, and it's a really valuable point too because I think it's really interesting to talk to you who's just done this train change as opposed to someone who's been there for 20, 30 years. Because, right, for example, if I'm learning how to code, I've never coded in my entire life, I think... I'm going to be better suited learning from someone who's been coding for one or two years as opposed to someone who's been coding for 20 or 30 years. The 20 or 30-year guy isn't even going to know anything about these little things. He just types these things without... They're just so deep in his brain at this point yeah. he doesn't think about them. I really want to learn at the one, two-year guy who knows, okay, I was just in your shoes. I know exactly the questions you have, the difficulties you're going through. I want to talk to you. So especially someone like you who, you know, just made this change. You've been there for a year now yeah. at this point. I want to learn from you. How do I make this change? How do I talk to my hospital about making these changes? Was it a good decision, do I think? Was it a bad decision, do I think? Were there things I would do differently? I think these are all really... So it's a great way, a great point in your social media time to talk about this. Yeah, I no, I, I mean, I think having an understanding of, you know, the industry and the, the greater ecosystem as a whole is something that we're not taught in med school no or residency even. And, um, and then, you know, I just feel like there's so much that we could be learning, um, you know, that we should be learning, I should say, in med school that we're not taught. And so, you know, hopefully I can do my little part in educating on Maybe that. Maybe you should start like a fourth year medical school course elective, the business of medicine or something like that. I think that'd be 
You know, I've thought about that. And I know that there are actually programs out there like Mass General has an academia industry type of year-long curriculum where Uh I think they have like a lecture series. Um, So I think that that's something that would be really helpful. But it shouldn't be a lecture series that, you know what I mean? I feel like it should almost be, I'm talking about elective right now. I think it should be earlier. I think you should learn this in like the first or second, maybe even right at the beginning when, you know, you're not getting deluged with all these nitty gritty medical information. You're just like learning. Because I remember the some of the first things we learn is like, you know, ethics, like autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. And maybe we're also learning, you know, respect patients and all this thing. And then maybe we should also list, learn like, okay, this is where your career might go. This is different options in your career. This is what how industry has an impact on what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Yeah, or even just health systems yeah. in general. Because like what the patient's going through isn't just their disease. It's also, you know, everything from the moment that they're they park at the hospital and they like, how do they navigate through the hospital to yeah. get to see the doctor? And then after that, like dealing with insurance and all this this stuff. I, I think that all, that whole process, I don't think we are taught enough about. No way. No way. Yeah. And it's it's and the reason I think it's important that we bring it up, because the ratio of like the way it's actually involved as a practicing attending or even as a patient to what we're taught in medical school is way, way off. Because we're like 0% in medical school and maybe, I don't know, I'm not going to apply a percentage to real life, but there's definitely a decent percentage that's like, how are we going to get this paid for? How do we talk to the insurance company? What is the insurance company thinking about? Why are they making these decisions? Why is there such a confrontational thing? Why is the hospital pricing this at 10 times the actual price cost it does? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they do that because they have to you know negotiate with the insurance company to get money so they can actually make a little bit of money so that they can pay for these devices and these drugs going future so patient can get these devices. Yeah, if we had more awareness in general about what each other were doing and why we decided to do things the way we have, I think there would be a lot more empathy. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think there's just taking medical devices, for instance. I, you know, know that before getting into this role, I'd be like, well, why is this device on back order? Why can't I actually get it? And what's taking so long? And and now I have a greater appreciation yeah. for, you know, why that is. And, you know, if I share it with my colleagues, maybe they'll also, you know, understand a little yeah. bit more about like, okay, this is the reason why. It's not because people are out there to like, you know, spite us. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> there's there's, there's very, li- very little of the time, that's definitely not proper English, but not often of the time there's actual malevolence. There's usually not evil intentions. And I think that's an important thing to think about. Usually, and I say... of the time, people aren't trying to be evil to hurt you just to hurt you. It's just kind of the way kind of maybe uppers are telling them what to do or, again, very broadly here. But I just, I don't think people are evil innately. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think that um, everyone's, you know, just trying to make it work and trying to do the best they can, you know. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm interested, say I'm in medical school, say I'm, I'm applying to med school, if I'm trying to learn more about this, these industry things, because I maybe won't learn it in medical school, where can I go? Should I follow you and watch your videos, which I think they definitely should? Um, <laughs> but are there other are there other places people can look to learn more about kind of these other opportunities? I think it just depends on what aspect of you know outside of clinical medicine you're exploring yeah. and and just talking to people. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was. I know that there are some kind of groups out there and informal groups, depending on what you're interested yeah. in, that you can join. And um, you know, I myself am also just getting involved in some of those groups like for the first time. 
But I, I'm realizing that it's just, you know, pick up the phone or reach out to somebody. Like, it, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, have conversations. Yeah. I think it's huge. It's huge. So as we get close to the end here, are there any mistakes you made throughout your career of medicine or your life in general that you think would be helpful to people to know? Like, is there any advice you would give your 18-year-old self or maybe yourself before you went into med school? Anything at all? I mean, since we're on the subject of kind of things that we didn't learn in med yeah. school, I would definitely want to, you know, have learned more about that on my own and spent yeah. more time on that. Um, it was a different world. Maybe yeah. back when I was then, maybe like things weren't as accessible on the internet or or YouTube at the time. Um, there was just less content available. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that it, it's hard for me to say that I, uh, you know, made any mistakes or regret anything because you know, as the cliche goes, like without having experienced that, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, knowing what I know today, it would have been nice to just explore more of that. And, um, you know, uh, and I think it might help me navigate healthcare a little bit better today. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really helpful. And I think this podcast has been amazingly helpful to people out there. As we come to the end, any closing words in general? This could be, why you should do GI, how to become a better GI, how to get into a GI fellowship. Or this could be, this is what you should do for your lifestyle changes. It could be finance advice. It could be anything whatsoever, just closing words in general, social media advice, anything. <laughs> well, I would say, um, kind of like what I said about my social media presence, when you look at it like a snapshot of everything right now, it looks like it was built overnight, you know, that all, everything that I've done, like it's, it seems like it was all done overnight and it's like, oh my gosh, how do I do all of that? And I think it's because, you know, I've done all this over such a long period of time. I don't uh, want people to feel like it's intimidating or something that you can't do as well because you can do it too. You know, it just takes time to build things up and, and be committed to something. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think the reason why I was able to, um, kind of have some of these unique experiences was because I had a, I kept an open mind too. I think that um, there are some people who are just very pigeonholed in in what they, you know, in their way of thinking and what they want to do. And and maybe that's, you know, exactly how they want their journey to play out. But for me, I always wanted to like be open to other possibilities and and without that kind of open mind and, you know, willingness to take a chance, uh, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't have this hybrid career today. Mm -hmm. And I, I know a lot of people who would turn down the opportunity that I had probably because, you know, they thought maybe it would be too risky or it might be, you know, um, you know, it, it was just too foreign for them. And, and for me, I was like, you know what, this is like a point in my career, you know, weighing the pros and cons that I think it was appropriate for me to take a risk, take a, take it as a learning opportunity, um, and, and go from there, you know, and uh, and so I can only imagine where I'm going to be in five, ten years because I'm, you know, carrying that mindset forward. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who knows? Well, that'll be great. We'll have to have you back then in those, yeah. in those five, ten years. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Dr. Chang. You can find Dr. Chang at Austin Chang MD on Twitter. So let's spell it out for the people: A U S T I N C H I A N G M D, and that's on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. You have a website, Instagram, Instagram, LinkedIn, LinkedIn you know. everything. The Be Real. We talked about this. You have a Be Real. No, you don't have a Be Real. I have a Be Real, but you I don't. Real. I, I'm You're not, not sharing very... this at this point. Well, I'm. I, I'm just not using it very much. Mm. There's just too much other. Snapchat. Things. You have a Snapchat, Snapchat as well. Yeah. You have a Snapchat. I stopped it. 
Snapchat. <laughs> but this has been great. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeah, Chai. thanks for having me again. Perfect.